Good morning. Um, this uh, morning what I'd like to do is kind of begin a series a bit early. Ron is going to be starting the first of the year a series on the book of Genesis, which is going to be really exciting to go through. Uh, so what I want to do this morning is kind of give us a little bit of a kind of a teaser to get us going. Uh, a lot of people, um, a lot of you guys may not be <clears throat> currently in a particular book in the Bible that you're reading or you're studying. So this would be a great time maybe to say, you know, I'm going to work through Genesis and kind of getting a running start on Ron and uh, kind of learn those early chapters of the beginnings of God's plan, of his ways through the book of Genesis. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. But before I get into Genesis 1, I really want to talk about the context of it because that's what's very, very important. Um, you know, it's been said that the greatest problem of man is man's seeking to find an identity for himself. Um, all of life really is about people looking to connect and to find out who they are and whose they are. And we look for those things in all kinds of things, in relationships. Um, all of our life we do that. Um, and you find that whenever you place yourself in the wrong context or in the wrong place for your identity, that's where lots of pain and struggle oftentimes occur. And that's no different here in the Scriptures. You'll see that God has called a nation to be His covenant people, and yet they continually forsake the Lord, forgetting who they are and whose they are. And that's the background of Genesis chapter 1, that God is going to, in Genesis, He's going to essentially remind the people whose they are. Ron oftentimes has said that the most uh, important word in the Hebrew language, at least within the Scriptures, is the word remember. That God is always trying to have the people remember the ways of the Lord. Remember His promises. Remember the way He delivered you. And uh, it's true with respect to our identity with God. So in doing that, uh, I want to show you a little bit of the background of what these people were like. And I think what you'll find is they're actually not a whole lot different than us. Um, you remember the story, for instance, in 1 Kings 18. It was the story of Elijah. Elijah had brought a famine to the land. He had, he had shut up the heavens for three years. No rain had come. Wicked King Ahab is angry, and Ahab uh, is looking for Elijah all of this time. And Elijah finally comes on the scene, and he's ready now to go head-to-head with Ahab. But he's going to do it in front of the entire house of Israel. For three years, the house of Israel has followed the, the, the ways of the Baals, which is these pagan gods. And now Elijah is going to go one-on-one. It is a showdown at the OK Corral between, between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And if you remember the story, he tells them, you guys make an, al- an altar and put a sacrifice on there. I'll make an altar and put a sacrifice on there. We'll both cry out to our God. Whoever God is able to shoot fire down from heaven and consume the sacrifice, that is the true God, which is genuinely a good test when fire shoots out of heaven. That's a tip-off that that is the true God. The people of Israel say, oh, this is a good idea. Um, and, but Elijah tells them before he does this, he says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, then follow Him. But if Baal is God, then follow Him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Why didn't the people answer him a word? Well, the reason is because they didn't know who the true God was, which is utterly astounding considering all of the things God has done to demonstrate his power and to demonstrate his covenant relationship with his people. And yet they are silent because they still aren't sure sure who the true God is. And you remember what happens. The 
prophets of Baal come and for nine hours they cry out to Baal. Oh, Baal, shoot fire from heaven. Consume this, this sacrifice. And nothing happens. It says that, the, 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 it's, there's silence. And, and then Elijah, trying to be, well, not being sensitive at all, mocks them. And he says, maybe your God is sleeping. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe you should shout louder. So they begin shouting louder. And then this time they pull out their swords and they begin, you know, cutting themselves, offering a blood sacrifice to the Baals. And yet there was nothing from heaven, no word from heaven. And the reason is because they were false and useless idols. And then Elijah, remember, he then cries out to God. And here is how he began his prayer. He says, O Lord, Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he takes the people back to the covenant promise that God gave these people. And all of a sudden he says, let fire come down from heaven to consume this this offering. And all of a sudden, I wish Steven Spielberg could do a movie on this, fire like a beam shoots out from heaven, consumes the offering and the altar and all the water that Elijah has soaked it down with. And the people see it and they fall on their face and they cry out, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. He is the Lord. And you see them worship at that point. But the tragedy is that these people went for three years following the gods of Baal. And the irony, of course, is Baal was the god of fire. And so Elijah says, let's do a little showdown here and we'll play in your city, in your field, with your ball and with your refs, and let's see how it goes. And they lose big time. And yet God shoots fire out of heaven and the people worship. See? Well, you would think that once you saw that, that's all you'd need to see. That the nation then would always remember that. Well, it wasn't so. Uh, Going to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is warning Israel to turn back to the Lord. And look what he says in chapter 2. Don't turn there. I'll just read it. He says, has a nation ever exchanged its gods? Jeremiah says, you look at all of the pagan nations around us. None of them exchange their gods. They keep continuing to believe in their own gods. Even though they're worthless, they never exchange their gods. Yet, my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. Meaning, Israel has the true God, and they have no problem exchanging their God. They have taken their glory, which is the covenant promise that God had given them. You are my people, and I will be your God. And they have exchanged it, he says, for useless idols. And then he says, be horrified at this, O heavens. Be shocked and utterly appalled. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. And Jeremiah says, you guys have bought into something that is utterly worthless. And you have exchanged your glory for that which has no value. He goes on in chapter 10, and he says this. God says, you are to say this to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under these heavens. God says, all these other alleged gods who did not create the heavens and the earth, when the time comes for judgment, they will all perish. The Lord made the earth by His power, established the world by His wisdom, spread out the heavens by His understanding. And then Jeremiah, also being a very sensitive prophet, says, everyone is stupid and ignorant. Isn't that nice? That's not a good evangelism technique, by the way. Everyone, he says, is without knowledge and ignorance. 
Every goldsmith is put to shame by his carved image, for his cast images are a lie. All these people making little images and icons of gods. It's all a lie. And the reason it's a lie is because they're worthless. They are worthless. A work to be mocked, for there is no breath in them. Then he says, but the Lord is not like these, because he is the one who formed all things. Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. See what Jeremiah just did? He calls the people back on two, uh, two, for two reasons. One, it, uh, he says, um, the Lord is the one who formed all things. He goes back to creation. Creation is there to call God's people back to follow the Lord. And number two, Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. There is a covenant relationship God has given with them, and yet they have exchanged the glory of that covenant for that which is worthless. Now, I know this doesn't apply to us, but there's a whole lot of people that does apply to. The exchanging of the glorious covenant that God has called us into for things that are worthless and meaningless. See? That's the history of the people of Israel. One reason I love the Old Testament, when I was younger and I read this, um, it didn't do for me what it does now. And I'm sure it won't do for me today what it will in 20 years. One reason I love the Old Testament is because when I read it, uh, I see myself in this thing more and more and more. When I look at these people, is it possible to see the great miracles and power of God and yet in three months walk in idolatry and abandon the ways of the Lord? Is that possible? You bet it is. Remember Exodus? God takes them through the Red Sea. Three months after the Red Sea, after they saw the sea part, and the entire nation goes through there, and it comes back and takes the Egyptian army up. Three months after that, you have the people, while Moses is on the mountain, the Mount Sinai, getting the law from God, they are in revelry and partying and doing things they shouldn't be doing at the bottom of the mountain. And God says, go down to your people and look what they're doing. Because Moses was up on the mountain too long. Because their hearts have gone astray. See, this is the context of Moses writing the book of Genesis. Uh, if you go, for instance, uh, let me just give you a few examples. I really want you to get a sense of, of, of what's going on when Moses is writing this. In the book of Numbers, um, remember, Moses is in the wilderness for 40 years with these people, and he writes five books, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this is an account numbers of their dealings uh, in the wilderness. And look at these people. This is after they've seen the, the, the powers of God. Now the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. Contemptible people among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites cried again and again, Who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt along with the cucumbers and the melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at but this manna. Remember the manna that God gave out of His graciousness to provide for the people in the wilderness? And they stop and they complain. They turn against the gift of God and they go, God, you remember the onions and the leeks and the cucumbers in Egypt? Whoa, those vegetables were amazing. But what do they conveniently forget? They completely forgot about the bondage and the oppression and the suffering and the killing that was going on in Egypt. And they're complaining because they have this immediate appetite. And they say, oh, I remember how good those cucumbers were. Mmm, 
than the text. Those onions, those leeks. Mm. Boy, Egypt, Egypt wasn't that bad. Bondage wasn't so bad. Slavery wasn't so bad. How quickly they forget. He goes from there. And you just got to go a couple chapters. You go to chapter 14. All of a sudden it says, All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron. And the whole community told them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. Or if only we had died in the wilderness. Look how dramatic they are. Oh, you should have let us die in Egypt. Oh, you should have let us die in the wilderness. Why are you taking us into the promised land to fight these Canaanites and Perizzites and all these other ites out there? Oh, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Isn't that amazing? That their hearts so quickly can go back. Or if you go a little further, just two chapters to chapter 16 again. And by the way, after each one of these, I'm not reading the next part, but God is judging them each time. Each time He's sending judgment. And they see it and they repent and then it happens again. 16. Now Korah took 200. Korah was one of the leaders. He was an instigator. Korah took 250 prominent Israelite men who were leaders of the community and representatives in the assembly, and they rebelled against Moses. They came together against Moses and Aaron and told him, You have gone too far, Moses. Everyone in the entire community is holy, and the Lord is among them. When then do you exalt yourselves above the Lord's assembly? In other words, who are you to put yourself above us? Who made you boss? And the answer is, God. And God is so offended by this rebellion that you remember what happened at Korah's rebellion? The Lord then takes the 250 leaders and He takes Korah and all of his family and the Lord opens up the earth and it swallows them up whole. And the people look at that aghast at what the Lord has done because of the rebellion of their hearts. Wouldn't you think just then, if I-35 opened up and swallowed people up and you heard the Lord cry out, uh, turn to me, my people, that that is a, that's a pretty good reason to kind of keep it to yourself if you feel frustrated? Not them. Chapter 21, let's keep it going. Then they set out from Mount Or by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom, but the people became impatient because of the journey. Don't say it! You just want to scream to these guys, No! Keep it to yourself! The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we, listen to this, we detest this wretched food. What's the food? The blessed manna that the Lord gave to provide them. We detest this wretched food. I'm so sick of boiled manna and fried manna and gumbo manna and all. That's all we got, manna. I'm sick of it. Oh, I remember Egypt. Oh, the glory days of Egypt when we had cucumbers and leeks and onions. Those were the days. Well, look what the, look what the Lord does. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and they bit them so that many Israelites died. God sends serpents and snakes out after them. And they're running around. These snakes are chasing them and they're biting them. But God provides a way out. Remember what He does. He tells them, 
take the bronze serpent and put it in the center of the camp. Anyone that looks on it will surely live. Whoever doesn't look on it will die. Remember? That's, by the way, the context of John 3.16. Before, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, who has ever believed in Him. Right? Right before that, He likens the Son of Man to the time of Moses lifting up the bronze serpent so anyone who looks upon Him will live and not die. A rebellious and stiff-necked people. Hardened in their hearts. Can I show you one more? Numbers 25. I mean, it just keeps going. While Israel was staying in Acacia Grove, the people began to have relations with the women of Moab. Ooh! Moab! That's a nasty people there. And God said, don't you have any relations with the Moabites? By the way, the most famous Moabite in your Bible is who? Ruth. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods, and the people ate and bowed and worshipped to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor. They bowed and are in worship to the gods of Baal in the wilderness. Is that not just absolutely incredible? That you see a people whose heart so easily gets distracted and goes off another way because they have these immediate appetites that now I want something. That I cannot wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled. That when I enter the promised land, I'm going to be given a land flowing with milk and honey. And I'm going to have a land that far surpassed anything Egypt had to offer me. But instead, because I'm unhappy now, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to rebel. And I'm going to find something to take care of me now. Oh, Lord, have you brought us out here to die? You guys see the context now of what Moses is doing in Genesis? When Moses writes Genesis 1, you know, we have this idea that somehow... Genesis is the first book of your Bible written in like 10,000 B.C., right? And Moses somehow got it. No. Moses was written in the, uh, Genesis was written in the wilderness. And he's looking around with all of this stuff happening. The rebellious people. And now he's writing a treatise on who God is, who they are, and whose they are. Y'all with me? That's how Genesis begins. So now, that being said, go to Genesis chapter 1. And let me show you the text here. Genesis chapter 1. Most the, I remember thinking Genesis 1 was just, okay, yeah, God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that. Let's move on. And you just kind of reduce Genesis 1 as that story of creation. This thing is so packed, full of theological meaning and significance and so much application for our life today. Very first verse. We could spend the entire time in the first verse. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Moses writes this, and he is in a culture surrounded. Behind him is Egypt. Ahead of him are the pagan ites of all these different pagan cultures. And he says, we may be surrounded by idolatry and paganism, but let me tell you something. In the beginning, Elohim, God, created the heavens and the earth. This is what's called a mirrorism of totality, which means everything that exists within the heavens and the earth Everything has been created by the God of Israel. There are no other gods that have any sort of sovereignty or equal sovereignty to the God of Israel. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is a monotheistic, singular God who has all the power there is to have, who has spoken the world into existence. He is a personal God who enters into His creation and speaks it into existence. You know, this verse, by the way, 
This verse has been vindicated in the past 40 years. Um, I don't personally take the view that Genesis 1 is a scientific text. What it says about science is true, but it is not a scientific text. I don't believe Moses is sitting in the wilderness watching all these rebellious people and decides to write a scientific text on creation. I don't think that's what he did. I think he's writing a text that may say some things about creation. It may say some things that are historically, um, they're historical observations that he made that are true that science can vindicate. So what it says about history, science can vindicate, but it's not predominantly a scientific text. But when it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that is a clear statement that there was an absolute beginning to all of the cosmos that exists. That was an astounding statement in the time that Moses was writing because pagan cultures in that day believed that the universe and everything that they saw was eternal, that it's always existed. The Greeks embraced that. The Romans embraced that. The pagan religions embraced that. The Babylonians embraced that. And yet Moses comes out in contradiction to all the surrounding cultures and he goes, no, all of the heavens and the earth, everything that you can see had a beginning. Even up until the 20th century, the idea that the universe is eternal has been a part of science. And it wasn't until Einstein in the early 20th century when he came up with his, uh, his theories of relativity that he realized that space and time is this fabric that's interwoven. Space and time aren't separate entities. They're interwoven. It's a space-time continuum. And what he proved through his theories, what he saw was that the universe is actually expanding. And Einstein resisted that notion so much that he had to throw a, what he called a fudge factor that he made up into his equation in order to create what's called a repulsion force to keep the universe from expanding. His own equations were proving that the universe expands. What's the problem if you have an expanding universe? If it's expanding, what does that mean? That means there must have been a point of origination. And Einstein resisted that notion. And then Edwin Hubble, the astronomer, looking in his telescopes in 1921 he looks out and for the first time edwin hubble sees something that not a single human being in the history of the earth ever saw he looks through his telescope these power telescopes and what he saw astounded him he saw the galaxies that he could see through the telescope they were all receding uniformly from each other it's kind of like if i took a balloon and i put 10 dots in a circle and i blew up the balloon what would those 10 dots do they would all uniformly recede away from each other, wouldn't they? That's what the galaxies are doing. And he was able to look through the telescope and see, oh my goodness, the universe in fact is expanding. Einstein was right through his equations. All the way into the 60s where you had um, Penzias and Wilson, these two um, guys who worked for Bell Laboratories. They coincidentally, not even trying, they realized, they discovered that there is a, a radiation that is uniform throughout the entire cosmos, which means that it was the result of some massive explosion of light that exploded and the universe came into, a being from, into being from an explosion of light. It had a beginning and it's expanding. Almost like verse 3, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day and He called the darkness night. See, from the very beginning here, you see this idea that God created the universe out of nothing. He literally created, ex, it's called ex nihilo creation, out of nothing. He speaks it and it exists. That is one of the fundamental conundrums 
of, of physicists today. How do you account for a universe that used to never be and suddenly is? How do you explain that? Well, the Bible is very clear. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and He speaks it. And He is a powerful and a personal God. And you know what else He does? Verse 2. The earth was formless and empty and dark. Covered the surface of the watery depths and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. You see that the initial... um, the initial uh, description of creation was that it was in chaos. It was formless. It was dark. And what does God do? Well, if you read the rest of the creation account in Genesis 1, you begin to see that God brings order out of disorder. God brings light into darkness. And He begins to fill creation. Check it out. Day 1, He talks about light. Day 4, He fills the heavens with the luminaries to guide us by day and by night, the sun and the moon. Day two, He creates the waters. Day five, He fills the waters. Day three, He creates the land. Day six, He fills the land. See the filling motif? Light fills the skies. Water fills the waters. Land fills the lands. And the culmination of that creation process is the creation of man. He is, he is that God who takes that which is empty and He fills it. And that is what God does throughout the entire Bible. He takes that which is empty and He fills it. Remember the woman at the well? Going for the water? Jesus says, if you drink of the water I give you, you will never thirst again. You're empty. If you drink of what I give you, you will never thirst again. That's how God operates. He looks at every one of us and He says, every one of you here have had an emptiness. And I'm here to fill the emptiness. Every one of us have been in a place of darkness. I am here to infuse light into your life. Remember Colossians, Paul says, For He has transferred us out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of God's own Son. Isn't that good? He takes that which is dark and He infuses light. He takes that which is empty and He fills it. And there's an order to this. He takes that which is chaotic and He brings order out of this chaos. Now, I could stop right there and we could go eat Tex-Mex and it's a good time. We just, we just had a good Genesis 1 right there. But it gets better. You know what? Verse 26. Verse 26. Do Tex-Mex in a few minutes. Hang on. This right here is the verse that literally has completely turned Western civilization upside down which allowed Western civilization to become a beacon of light to all the world. You know what it is? Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in His own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. That right there, that is what drove the Judeo-Christian worldview, belief system, to literally completely overtake the Roman Empire and eventually to spread all throughout Europe into the Americas and eventually to all the world. It is this idea that man is made in the image of God. And not just man, male, but what? Male and female, He created them in the image of God. An utterly astounding statement in that day. I was at Starbucks this morning before I came to the first service. Surprise, surprise. 
And I had this book in my hand that I've been uh, reading, The God That Did Not Fail, How Religion Built and Sustains the West. Um, and it's not talking about California. It means Western civilization. God has not sustained California. Um, just kidding. But I had this book in my hand, getting my new drink, since I canceled my old one. And I, so I have this, and the guy says to me, hey, what you reading? And I said, oh, it's a book called The God That Did Not Fail. He goes, what's it about? And I said, well, I said, actually, it's about how Judeo-Christianity um, uh, impacted Western civilization and how the entire world today has essentially been blessed through the impact of Judeo-Christianity. And, uh, and he says, huh, I mean, how? And I said, well, I said, you know, in Judeo-Christianity, it, we believe, the Bible teaches that God is a God of order. God is, is, is the great mind, and he's made us in his image. And therefore, we have the ability to think. And we've been given the commandment to um, subdue the earth. And it was that idea that created this desire to understand nature, to understand the mind of God. And I told him, I said, you know, it's guys like Newton and Kepler and Boyle and Galileo and all these guys. These were Christians who their desire was to understand the makings of this world that God had made. And through that, you had the rise of science and technology. I said, it's because it came out of this desire to know the mind of God. And I asked him this question. I said, haven't you ever wondered why civilizations that have existed before Israel and before Christianity came on the scene, haven't you ever wondered why for thousands of years um, all these other civilizations never came up with a fully developed application-oriented science and technology? Why didn't they? He said, I never thought about that. And I said, well, it's because they never had a worldview that commanded them to subdue the earth and to desire to know the mind of God. He goes, man, what's the name of that book? And he wrote down the title. He said, hey, I'll give it to you when I'm done. Maybe. $27. <laughs> but that's, that's Genesis 1, and one twenty-seven. It's that verse that shows the dignity of man. It's that verse that shows the sacredness of man. That, it's that that shows the communion of man with God. I mean, I've had, you know, one of the greatest animals you could ever have is a golden retriever. Jake, my dog, great dog. 400 bucks, got him trained. He's awesome. He does everything, but he still won't get ready for church with me on Sundays. I just don't understand it. He won't sing Amazing Grace, How Great Thou Art. He just, he just doesn't, I don't know. I keep trying to get him to have this religious instinct, and he just won't do it. See, nothing in the creation has the religious instinct. Nothing except man. Why is it that man has the religious instinct? Why do we have the religious impulse? It's because we have been made in the image of God that God has built within us the desire to want and to know something greater than this world. It's an utterly astounding fact. In fact, modern neuropsychology today has demonstrated that there's portals in the brain that create the religious instinct in the brain that you can actually see the area of the brain that God built in man that doesn't exist in any of the animal creation, that it's there in man and nowhere else, that that is the access point for which we have religious experience and can know God. Isn't that fascinating? That's how God communes with us, through our minds and into our souls, that we might have communion with Him. My dog doesn't have that portal. No animal has that portal for the religious instinct. Man does, because he has been made in the beauty of the image of God. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, I think a couple things. 
Remember, Moses wrote this. You always want to apply the Bible in the context of how it was used back then. Moses is writing Genesis to remind the people of the greatness of God through creation and that they are the covenant people of God. And he calls them to look at the creation, look at the heavens, look at how they declare the glory of God. And I ask, how many of us are enamored by the beauty and the order of the universe? I mean, how many of us honestly take the time on a somewhat regular basis to just stop at night and look up for 5, 10, 15 minutes and just look and gaze at the grandeur of the creation of the stars. Now, I've got a place in Denton. For 20 years I've gone here. I go at least twice a month, at least twice a month. I go there all the time. I've done it for since I was in high school, after I got saved. And it's a place that's out by the airport. It's elevated, and so I can see over all of the city. There's no lights out there. And I, I go out there all the time. I get my car, and I park, and uh, there's not a house around for at least half a mile, three-quarters of a mile. And I'll put in a praise CD. Sometimes I'll take my pillow with me. And I'll get out of my car and I'll lay on my hood. And I'll put the pillow up on the window, the windshield. I'll lean back. And I'll just literally, I'll stay there. And for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I'll just stare. And sometimes I'll just try to find the farthest little glimmering star. And just try to keep myself amazed at how utterly incomprehensible the Lord can be sometimes. At His grandeur and at His majesty. Do we ever do that? See, the problem with the modern world is we're no longer fascinated by the beauty of the order of the external world because we feel like we figured it out. See? We feel like science has, has discovered it all and figured it out, so we're not really enamored by that anymore. But just because science has learned the operations of the physical world, science doesn't have a clue and it doesn't have the tools to answer the questions of why is that out there? And what is the purpose of all that out there? See? That's that reflective time of just looking at the creation and just standing in awe. Some of you have told this before. My, one of my favorite, I've got a fun book about these great facts about the universe. I think I've told you all this before, but uh, it's no longer the biggest star. It's the second biggest star now. But it's a star called Betelgeuse. Kind of a cool name. Betelgeuse, just to give you a sense of how amazing Elohim is. Um, the distance from the earth to the sun it's about 93 million miles. It's a long way. 93 million miles. Betelgeuse, which is one star, one sun, and it's no longer the biggest. Betelgeuse is 400 million miles in diameter. That means one sun is, four, is more than four times farther than the distance from the earth to the sun. One big ball. 400 million miles. In, and that is one star out of hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of billions. And you look out, and when the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. I mean, the words don't even, they barely even scratch the surface of what that even means. That that is the grandeur and the glory of our God. See? And He cries out for all of us to, to, to abide in the covenant that He has given us. The covenant that we can know Him and that we do not get so myopic in our world, that we don't get so inundated in the small things 
that we lose the beauty and the majesty of God. You know, that's my deal. It is so easy for me to to think about my mortgage note coming this month and my health insurance and my gas in my car and my car payment. And all of a sudden, my world is just itty, bitty, 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 tiny. And God is just gone because I'm so, I'm so into the small things of this world. Now, are those things important? You bet they are. We've got to take care of those. God is in those things. But man, we've got to open our eyes. We've got to recognize, just as Moses was writing to the people, reminding them, our God is so great that in the spoken word, all of the heavens and the earth can be created. And that is a God that deserves our allegiance. And that we do not exchange the glory of our covenant for something that's worthless and useless. Amen? We do not exchange that glory for things that are worthless and useless. So, when we leave, let's take some time today, tonight, sometime this week, and really reflect on the magnificence of the beauty of God.